Support for the Agave Social Club podcast is brought to you by SipTequila.com. Don't miss their current Black Friday deals where you can save big on specific bottles. A big thanks to SipTequila.com, who's been a longtime partner of the Agave Social Club. If you haven't shopped with them before, I want to encourage you to go to SipTequila.com and see firsthand the incredible experience that is unlike any other online retailer. Premium brands ship direct to your door. Imagine pulling out journals that you've kept over the past 15 years, documenting your tequila journeys, taking notes from each industry expert that's willing to share their gift with you, and then trying to figure out how to organize it in a way that will act as the ultimate field guide for all things tequila. My guest today has done just that. Highly regarded as one of the most respected agave spirits culture specialists and founder of the award-winning tour group Experience Agave, Clayton Check is on a mission to educate on all things tequila and agave spirits. We're going to hear his story and look at his brand new book that's a must for any tequila lover on this episode of the Agave Social Club Podcast, hosted by me, Doug Price. Welcome to the show. This is the Agave Social Club Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Price. My guest today is acclaimed agave and tequila advocate, creator of Experience Agave Tours, founder of Lakata Tasting Room, and author of one of my favorite books, A Field Guide to Tequila, What It Is, where it's from and how to taste it, Clayton Check. Clayton, welcome to the show and thanks for being here. Thanks a lot, Doug. I'm excited to do this. Absolutely. Clayton, we both had the opportunity to hang out together with a large group for the Tequila Matchmaker added a free week. You were actually the special guest. I remember people hearing <laughs> on day one, they were even saying, I hope the special guest is Clayton. And and that speaks to you know the respect that you have for so many in the industry. But there was a time that that you and Tequila didn't really see eye to eye when, when you first First, uh, had the experience with it. Tell, tell me a little bit about uh, how you got into tequila. Yeah, well, you know, I think you're you're alluding to a little uh, self-effacing anecdote at the very beginning of the book in the preface. It, you know, I could go deeper into it, but like a lot of people, my my first encounters, my first several encounters with tequila were not great. You know, I got started early, so my first one was in high school, okay. uh, and then I sort of and then I sort of had a repeat in college, and you know, between being youthful and just not knowing how to drink generally, having no sense of quality and no sense of my own limits. Uh, I had two very bad experiences with tequila and decided twice that it was it was not for me and never going to happen again. But uh, luckily, some very good friends of mine at a wedding in San, San Antonio, Texas, uh, when I was on my way to move to Mexico for the first time in 2006, corrected me and and set me on the right path. And you you got to spend some time with some quality tequila around. I know that wedding that weekend, and, and they said, "Hey, if you're if you're moving to Mexico, you you've got to get into this." And and you for the first time really saw, wow, this this actually is pretty impressive and something that that I can get into. Yeah, it was kind of having it. You know, it was a Mexican American wedding, and kind of having it more in in the cultural context of you know we're. Yes, it's a wedding. We're celebrating. You know, people are gonna have a good time and get loose. But that's not the. We're not. We're not just trying to plow through this bottle like teenagers and, and you know get to the bottom as, as fast as we can. So, sort of in, in the context of that, it was a good introduction. And then when I got to Mexico, I just I started picking up bottles and and uh, wondering about what all the differences were about. So you moved to Mexico. I mean, you were just reading everything you could get your hands on, and it was something that it, it was more than just a spirit to you as you were starting to to understand it. And- and educate yourself with it? Yeah, you know, it became a hobby. Ironically, I was not anywhere near the tequila producing region. I was living in the capital of the state of Veracruz, Jalapa, uh, which is, you know, almost as different from, from Jalisco as you can get. It's it's very cold. It's it's in the foothills. It's very green and verdant. But, you know, there's, there's of course, tequila in, in the shops. And uh, it was a place that I didn't really vibe with, you know. I think for Mexico, it was a place that was a little cold figuratively as well. And I think I was at a point in my life where, you know, I was uh, young and single and unattached, but most of my peers who I worked with in the school I was teaching at already had families. So they weren't trying to hang out with me. And so I didn't really, you know, connect with very many people. So I spent a lot of time in the library and I spent, <laughs> I spent a, a decent amount of time sipping alone. And I would just go to the, to the local supermarket and you know, the, the supermarket there had a larger selection of tequila than I was accustomed to because I had never gone out of my way to look for tequila. So uh, I, it kind of, you know, once a week, once every two weeks, I would treat myself to a new bottle and, and started kind of building up a little collection. And like you said, 
you know, I was reading a lot, you know, I'm, I'm nerdy by nature. Uh, and so if I start spending time with anything, I sort of want to understand it. So yeah, I started reading about it and got to give a shout out to to the Blue Agave Forum, the In Search of the Blue Agave, as it was known then. That, that's where I was reading in English. I was reading everything I got my hands on in Spanish. You know, this still felt like the fairly early days of the internet. You know, uh, it wasn't social media per se. It was bulletin boards and things like that still. So between all the books I could get on interlibrary loan at the local, you know, public library in Jalapa and all the folks, most of whom are, are you know, still still in the scene teaching me stuff on In Search of the Blue Agave, I was able to learn a lot. You know, back in those days, you know, there was the whole idea of netiquette, uh, being a good netizen. Uh, you know, and so there were there were sort of you know rules about how you engaged in in uh, forums, in bulletin boards, and things like that. And one of them was do a do a good search and don't ask a question that's been, been asked, asked yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, this has really kind of gone the way of the dinosaurs in in the Facebook era. But and I did that, and it was honestly pretty close to a year before I had a question that hadn't been answered either on that forum or in a book that I can get at the library. So there was already quite a lot of information built up. The information in English at that time, the best stuff I could find was was on that forum for sure. And I know you, growing up in California, you'd been going, I mean, at a young age, you'd been going to Mexico back and forth, but you, you actually moved there and you said that was to, to teach. Is that what brought you to Mexico? Yeah, well, actually, I hadn't gone to Mexico until I graduated from high school. Um, I grew up in the I grew up in the Central Valley, and you know was around Mexican and Mexican American culture. You know, most of my life, my godparents are Mexican American. You know, we we grew up in the Catholic Church, so you know that's that's a little bit different. But but I yeah, I didn't make it to Mexico. My my parents weren't big travelers. Yeah, I did the classic backpacking thing right out of high school. Me and my best friend walked across the border with big old backpacks full of gear that we never used. Uh, you know, sort of thinking. We were going to make our way across the entire country, you know, and with the time and money we had, we made it down, uh, I think, to about Mazatlan <laughs> and uh, took a ferry to Baja and came back. So we did a, a quick little loop. It was about one month uh, sort of around the Sea of Cortez there. But when when I moved to Mexico, it was with a really specific goal of getting my Spanish to a really high level. I, I, I started studying Spanish in high school. I was good at it. I had good teachers. I had lots of opportunities to practice. So I came out of high school functionally bilingual and was was working in social service jobs all through college and after college bilingually with native speakers and with people who were monolingual Spanish. And my Spanish was was really good in a professional sense, but it wasn't particularly good in a day-to-day living yeah. sense. So at some point I just decided I wanted to move to Mexico to get my Spanish to a place where where I could really live in it. So I basically came down to to isolate myself and get my Spanish together. And and the tequila was was the furthest thing from my mind, really, when I when I came down. But it got you. So you're you're reading you're reading so much. You're learning. You're sipping. How long before you know you living in the area that you're living before you go? Hey, let me go to the town tequila. Let me go to my first distillery. How how long before that uh, experience happened for you? Yeah, it was it was a little under a year. Um, I was I, I taught for an entire academic year. I was teaching English in the equivalent of a high school, basically a couple different high school level institutions. And so I was there for a little under 11 months and was ready to head back and, and had some plans for when I got back. I was living in Portland. I lived most of my adult life in Portland in, in the States and had read all this stuff and just thought, man, this, I almost didn't believe it. I was, I was kind of incredulous about this plant. I, I was not botanically minded. You know, I had never really had a green thumb or thought much about plants. I had never, you know, like a lot of people when they're in college, I had sort of got into beer you know, oh, I like copy IPAs, you know, because that was, you know, what was going on in Portland at the time. But I hadn't actually really studied any of this stuff or thought much about plants. And so everything I was learning kind of popular botany about the agave just sort of blew my mind because I had never thought about plants before. And I certainly knew nothing about cam plants and, and succulents and things like this. So I was on my way out of the country and I thought, well, what the hell, you know, Guadalajara is, is you know, easy to get to. I'll go there, I'll go to tequila. And just getting to the town and, you know, Seeing seeing the volcano even before I knew what it was coming out on the bus and just it was a clear day and that volcano just hits you and there was blue agave everywhere you know to this day I've probably come around that bend and and seen that view I don't know hundreds many hundreds of times and and it still gets me you know every time especially if I've been away for a while but but even when I was essentially living in tequila 
coming back from Guadalajara every time, it's just like, man, I got to be here. I feel, I feel really privileged. And just the people were so warm and, and, and so nice and tolerant of, of my incessant questions that I just, I got a really, really good feel for the place and immediately started thinking about, uh, what can I do to keep coming back here? Yeah, I, I was honestly, I was just thinking about that uh, a couple of days ago, you know, my first trip, I've, I've had the honor and privilege to go to Jalisco multiple times since and, and i've got multiple trips planned and and i remember going there and just you know like you say dr- just driving on the road and seeing the fields of the agaves and just being in total awe of it after you've read so much after you've seen and you've tasted and and i remember every person that i came in contact with that was around and you know friends that i'd met via online that i got to spend time with i remember i just kept saying to them to you this is just a tuesday to me, this is like Christmas morning. Like, like, and, and I, I yeah. even had somebody with me go, I hope I can continue to have that same feeling because it's easy to live yeah. there and to, I mean, I get emotional. Talk, you know, it's like, it's easy to, to live there and just think, yeah, I just live here. And, and it's, you know, it's like, I, I live in Orlando, Disney world's 20 minutes. I see, you know, and you just go, ah, that's cool. Not knowing right. that most people wait their entire life to go to Disney world. And it's a pretty special it's thing. True. And so to, to go there, it, it's such a special thing. It hit me a couple of days ago, just thinking about, man, I want to make sure, cause it's easier for me now as I'm creating a lot of content and I'm going there with like, I've got to get this, 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 but to go there and just get lost in the beauty and the culture. And, and I know a lot of your career, you, you've been studying that and, and you just, you just said something that you even talk about in your book and, and you say, and we're going to get into the book. So we're, we're not going to fully get into it right now, but we, we will get into it. But, but one thing that you said was I had learned time and time again, that an outsider's sincere and respectful interest in the culture means a lot to the people. And, and that's something I mean, you couldn't be, have been more right with that. I mean, as, as I continue to go there and just see the people and how much they love, I mean, how much they embrace us to go, man, thank you for sharing our story. Uh, what were some of those things that stood out to you as, you know, you, you are studying culture, you are studying not just tequila. There's a lot more than this whole thing is not just about tequila. It's a lot more than that. But what were some of those things as you were getting to know that culture that stood out to you? Well, you know, that, that observation I made went back to 95, you know, when I was in the Northwest of Mexico and nowhere near Jalisco yet, just, just that people really, I I don't think this is, you know, peculiar to Mexico necessarily, but I think when you're an outsider and your interest is sincere, people recognize that. And, and even if they're not the kind of people that would normally maybe take their time to explain something that to them is very obvious, or maybe not that interesting, when someone came from relatively far away and is doing their best to, to, to learn about it, it, it piques their interest. It makes them curious, you know, about, about the things that they take for granted. And so when I got to tequila in, in 06, you know, it was, I'm going to sound like, you know, I'm going to sound older even than I am, but it, it was, it was a different time, you know, and it's not that there was no tequila tourism and it's not that there weren't people, you know, seeking out the region, but the, the UNESCO declaration was only a few years old. Mundo, Cue- Mundo Cuervo, I think it only opened like three or four years prior um, their hotel was was far away at that point. Um, there were there weren't a lot of hotels. There were very very. I think there might have been two local operations running little local tours to distilleries there. Um, what Cofradia had this is way before the barrel hotels. Cofradia was was you know doing stuff. Mundo Cuervo had opened recently. Herradura was doing tours, but it really was a different environment. And not to say that I was remotely even the first kind of person like me to to think about this. You know, the, the Blue Gave folks had been doing their thing for several years by then. But Larry from Cantina Maya Well in San Diego had been going down for a long time. Obviously, folks had written books. But in 06, you know, well, by now it was 07. By, by the time I got there, it was 07. You know, the recession was right around the corner. Yeah. Um, it hadn't, it hadn't hit yet, but it was not a booming time. So I was wandering around tequila and it was dead. I mean, even on weekends, it's, it's impossible to fathom now because I, I won't even go to tequila on the weekends at this point. And, you know, the, the congestion of the novelty tour vehicles, <laughs> there were literally two tour vehicles. They were, they were both the barrels, barrels and that was the it. There were no, yeah. there were no guitars. There were no pinas. There were no tops. There were, you know, none of that. There were literally two of them. Um, there was never traffic in town, you know, except, you know, festival time and things like that. But it was, it was really, really sleepy. It was a really different time. So, 
in a way I was very lucky because it wasn't very saturated and I was, I was a real novelty at that moment. And I just recently met with one of the first people I met there, David Gonzalez Castaneda, who was a tour guide at the time. And we just had breakfast for me to give him the book a few weeks ago. And he said, oh yeah, you know, I remember watching you just walking around town from place to place to place to place with your little notebook and you're writing everything down and you're asking everybody questions. And I just watched you and I was like, what is, what is this guy up to? And I eventually met him and introduced myself. And, and we, we worked together on the first tours I did for, I think, three or four years. Um, and I learned a lot from him. So, you know, really the, the, the first thing that happened was that I, I was the only person kind of at that moment, it seemed like I was the only person there asking these kind of questions. And I was certainly the only person that was like, hey, I want to start bringing groups down pretty regularly. Would that be welcome? Would folks appreciate that? And everybody just said yes. And I think even four or five years later, things were a lot more crowded in in most ways. So the the timing was something I had no control over, but was very fortuitous. Yeah. I mean, and now, I mean, it's, it's like destination place, you know, we're, we're starting, when I go yeah. to the town of Tequila, there are more hotels being built, even as we go to Arandas and other areas, you know, I hear, Hey, they're, they're going to build a hotel here. And it really is. And I'm sure back then there were people that were really into it, that just for the love and passion wanted to go experience it. But distilleries weren't built for, you know, tours and the tasting no. room and, and kind of this like, Ooh, I'll get your photos. And and now that's kind of something it's, it's pretty interesting to think of. These are the same, you know, Felipe and Carlos and Guillermo, these guys were, were producing back then. And now they're rockstar legend status where back then a lot of times they were just hardworking guys making tequila, uh, but it, it really has changed. And I'm sure just over the years, yeah. you've seen a big difference. Well, and, and two things about that one, another, another point I was being too long winded to get to about, about the first time I went is that. At that time, the tourism industry was so small in tequila, forget about any other town in the region, but in te related to tequila. There was religious tourism. The Guachimontones were already a thing. You know, there's always water parks and Guadalajara is always a destination. But in terms of the tequila industry, even in the town of tequila, it was so nascent. And at that time, easily it was 95% national tourism. I mean, I know this because we had we had data from from the local tourism board and the and the chamber of commerce that I was part of when we had the bar there into 2018, 2019, 2020, where it was still 85% of the tourism was Mexican. Back so back then it was at least 95 for sure. And people were really didn't understand even the ones that worked in tourism they didn't really understand why i was so interested in it and why why i wanted to keep coming back and i don't know how to draw an analogy but it might be like if you grew up in detroit and everyone in your family had always worked in a car factory and someone from a country where they didn't have cars or a time traveler you know maybe came and was like this is where they make the cars. Yeah. Um, and you were just like, well, yeah, that's what we do here, man. We make cars. And and like, why are you, and you're asking questions about the steering wheels and the, the parts and the assembly line and, you know, where the rubber comes from for the tires. You know, they would just look at you like, like you were mad. And it was a little bit like that. And, and it was, you know, so much so that by the time we opened Lakata, I know we're going to get to Lakata later, but the time we opened the bar in, in 2017, we had local people coming in and being like, you know, this is a beautiful bar, but why do you have 200 tequilas? I mean, they're all basically the same. And, you know, not everybody thinks yeah. that. And certainly people who make tequila didn't think that. But the, you know, I think it's just a matter of when you grow up in a place and you're surrounded by something and it's the local industry, you really kind of take it for granted. And it, and it can be a real mystery why people from far away would want to come and be fascinated by it. And then quickly, you know, you mentioned, you know, the tequileros becoming rock stars and stuff. You know, Guillermo Erickson Salsa was, was definitely already legendary. I knew his name from the forums and stuff. And when I made my first trip there, the legendary lot five was, yeah. had just been, come out. So, so lot it's, it, I mean, it makes me feel ancient and also just more to the point, realize how much they've grown when I, I see the lot numbers now and I'm like, Oh wow. Cause the first one I bought right there in the museum was lot five. 
And, you know, I, that lot five reposado, I, I still have one locked away and I can still recall those flavors very well. But I, I banged on the metal door. You know, they had no tours. They barely had employees. <laughs> they weren't producing every week. They weren't producing every month. I mean, they had produced five batches for commercial sale at that point. I mean, it was basically a batch a year at that point, if I recall correctly. But so anyway, so I knocked on the gate and this guy answers and I'm like, oh, you know, he, you know, he's. He's kind of got a weird accent, but I've kind of got a weird accent. So whatever. So he shows me around and like, you know, shows me how they do it. And, and I leave and I'm just like, hey, you know, I wonder who that guy was. And, and it was Guillermo. And he, he didn't introduce himself. And, you know, his face wasn't all over the Internet yet. But um, he was he was very gracious. He and I were just I took him the book uh, right after you and I met last. And and uh, we were reminiscing about how, how much things have changed now that they have three shifts and, you know, a shortage. <laughs> He probably looks back on those days and, and part of him probably wants to get back to, to the time where it's a little more simpler back then, where now everyone's asking, yeah. how can we get Fortaleza? We can't get enough Fortaleza. Yeah. You know, another, another quick story, just to kind of set the baseline of how much has changed there in particular. I, I, I'd have to look up what year this was, but it, it wouldn't have been many years after that, you know, maybe uh, 09, 2010 at the latest, you know, he invited me and some other folks to come near the end of October for, you know, some, some kind of event. Okay. We go. Um, it was a small handful of people. I think everybody else was from California, maybe eight or 10 people. I know Tim and Stacy Hodge were, were there. They're the ones that, that come to mind, but some other folks, some other aficionados, friends of Guillermo's were there. And so, you know, we go to tequila, we hang out. Um, he throws a party. We go to the Mesquitan Cemetery where, you know, where the, the family crypt is and they've got it all decorated and everything. Um, they had never done the a Day of the Dead celebration before. You know, it, we were like the guinea pigs and he didn't really tell us what was going to happen. And we, we did this and it was very small and it was a very small group of people. So the party, you know, wasn't super banging, but it was fun. And the, the cemetery was like, wow, you know, like none of us knew that or I didn't know it was going to happen. You know, so after this, you know, four days, he's like, so, you know, I'm thinking about maybe making this a thing and, and inviting people down for this. Do you think people would want to do this? And we were like, are you kidding? And so, you know, it's funny because once in a while I'll, I'll be in the area and, and come out for one of the industry parties or something like that and just see, you know, now it's, I think, three three back-to-back-to-back industry, you know, shindigs, almost two weeks. And it's, and obviously the operation is huge and massive and the production values are very high. So it's, you know, it's just one of those things where you, you got to be there for something starting basically by coincidence yeah. and you know you feel very fortunate yeah it's, it's an experience going there seeing the ground seeing how special it is i, I mean I, i've had him on the show i've had kobe i've had billy i talk i mean i talk about them all the time because you, you don't fully understand how special that brand is until you meet the people and and it's a lifestyle it's i mean it is it is them i mean through and through in, in a very very special yeah, yeah special place so yeah. around two that you said 2008 2009 you start bringing people and and you're giving tours you know, today experience agave, the, you've got a team, you've got, you know, five or six people uh, that week yeah. we were together, Cami Kenna, who was with us, she, yep. she's part of your team all around. Amazing. Yep. Awesome. Agave. Love Nothing her. happens without yeah, Cami. Yeah, Nothing yeah, happens she's without She's awesome. <laughs> and, and you're, you know, I mean, you're into Mezcal. Talk to me a little bit about that and that journey from starting from where it was to where it is now. I'm sure growing pain, seeing what works, what doesn't work to go, Hey, let's set something up in Oaxaca. It's not super easy to get to all those spots in Oaxaca. And I know Cami's running in point on a lot of that but but what was that like yeah so in in 2008 i had so i had i got to tequila in 2007 i went back in 2008 i think twice and in that period when i got back to portland a former spanish teacher of mine approached me with the idea of starting a language school so we started a little business we started a private language private spanish language school for adults in portland and I got, you know, I got back to Portland and I was like, you know, these winners have really started to get to me. I, I need to figure, and you know, I had just had this sort of like epiphany in tequila and gone back a couple of times. And, and so I started to think, you know, A, selfishly, how do I get out of this place? Yeah. You know, it'd be great if I get out of this place for like a month every February and, you know, less selfishly and, and very relatedly, you know, I want to show people what I just saw. Like there, there really was this feeling of like, you know, when you find out something cool, it's like the first time, you know, I heard like punk music or, you know, the first time I got on stage and acted or something, you just, you want to tell people, you want to be like, you need to do this too. And of course, most people don't want to do these things, but this was something where I was like, people need to know about yeah. this. And, and I know people who will want to do this because they love Mexico, because they are curious about booze, because they're into wine, you know, many, re because they just, they like to get out of 
Pacific Northwest in the winter. So, so I had gone that the second time with this idea of, I had just had an experience when I lived in Jalapa where a friend had come to visit me and, you know, I was just showing around. I'd been there for about six months. And so I was kind of showing her the sites like you do. And, and she said, you'd be a really good tour guide, you know, and, and I, I didn't give it a second thought. It's like someone's attractive. Someone says, oh, are you a model? Or you make a funny joke. And someone's like, oh, you could be a stand up, you know, just things that people say. And she just said that. And I, you know, kind of laughed. But when I was in tequila the first time, I was like, well, someone did just say I could be a tour guide. And so I started thinking about it and, and we started the Spanish language school. Initially, the tours were going to be a project of the school. And I went down on the first two research trips explicitly with the idea that these would be Spanish language immersions around tequila that we would take our students on uh, in, in the winter. And that was the idea. And then that, that didn't really happen. The, the, that business partnership, um, you know, we, we parted ways. And in part, I had realized this thing really has legs. You know, this this tour thing could be could be its own thing eventually. So I took my first group down. It was all friends. We just split the costs. You know, I told them, you know, here's about what I think it's going to cost. We stayed in very low end places, and and everything was very fly by night. We did that. I just looked it up. We did that in March of 2009. So it'll be 15 years. Um, the company, sort of the company, in December of 2008. So between December and, and March, it'll be 15 years uh, since I started what's now Experience Agave. I think I did two tours the first year and they were very, very different than they are now. They really started to ramp up. Uh, by year three, I was back and forth all the time. I was I was in Guadalajara for two months at a time, twice a year. Then it was like three months at a time, twice a year. At, at, you know, at some point, I'm, I'm there half the year. It felt like it happened very quickly. And then you know, I went to Oaxaca for the first time somewhere in there and eventually started doing... I have to look at my little notes here because I told you I looked this up before we did this. Uh, we, we did those in 2012. You know, and... and you could talk even more about the explosion. You know, Oaxaca was already more of a tourist destination, but not for Mezcal. Yeah. You could talk even more about the even more outrageous explosion in interest and, and and tourism there. My timing there was not great. And and our tours in Oaxaca primarily consist of day tours that, that Darinel Silva, who's from Miwetlan and is, you know, has li- lived in Oaxaca his whole life and is fantastic. We, we work with him there and Cami and I do things occasionally. But the tequila tours were point being the the, the mezcal the mezcal tours have never been as big uh, for us and in part because by the time we really got off the ground there were already a number of, of very good people doing okay. it. I, I still consider us, you know, I don't particularly think we have competition in in the tequila tourism space for what it is that we do with mezcal. You know, if if we're booked or the dates don't work, there's three, four, or five people I can you know happily recommend that that you do something similar with. So anyway. In, in tequila, it seemed like it happened fast. By year four or five, it didn't make sense for me to live in the U.S. anymore. I moved to Mexico City and everybody in Jalisco judged me harshly for that. Why? Why would you move to Mexico City if you're doing tours here? And a lot of reasons for that. But, but you know, the, the main one was just to have kind of some separation between, you know, it, it would be kind of like I'm a West Coast guy, so I don't know if this will make sense to you, but It'd be kind of like if you lived in LA and, and you know, you, you flew to San Francisco for work or, or something like that. You know, it's a 45 minute, one hour flight. And, and shortly thereafter, we, we opened the bar in Tequila. So it's been 15 years of, of doing the tours. I, I, th- I don't know if I really answered the question. I mean, it's just, it's gotten bigger all the time until COVID. You know, we've, we've grown. It was just me for a really long time. And then Cami came on board, uh, Cami Kenna, who's just fantastic yeah. and is involved in a ton of stuff, has a Pisco brand, distills different spirits in Peru, um, just knows a ton about distilling yeah. and cocktails. She was asking so um, many questions, taking notes when we were, you know, we, we got a, a great education that week and, and you could tell she was eating it up. She was going, man, I, I mean, just yeah. hearing her ask certain questions, I was like, okay, she, I, I want to walk close to her because she, she knows what she's talking about. Yeah. You know, she's, she's one of, she's one of a very small number of people that are thanked twice in my acknowledgments. And that's because she's, she's in the, you know, gave me feedback on the book section and the technical expertise section, because I had a lot of questions for her about, about some distillation stuff. And so she and I were, were working together for a while and then slowly, you know, Dottie came on and the team started to grow. And I did a major rebrand in 2019, which was very involved and very expensive. Just in time for COVID. Just in time. Just in time. Yeah, we were, we were very happy with and we we're going to start doing the Ricea tours. And, you know, we had a big retreat and we, you know, we had a big party and like, there's six of us now. This is great. And then. 
COVID hit, you know, we haven't talked about the bar, but it, it, it killed the bar and it, you know, it, it shut everything down, obviously. And so we're, you know, we started doing tours very quickly after healthcare workers started getting uh, vaccinated because, you know, I, I know a lot of people in healthcare. And so a lot of friends, a lot of former tour guests um, work in healthcare and they were ready to get out of there and, and get a vacation, you know, once they were able to get vaccinated to get some time off. So we started doing, we started doing tours slowly after that. We're not back to where we were. It's also a different world, like we were talking about with tequila and, you know, the space is a lot more crowded and we're trying to be very thoughtful about how we maintain the level of quality and education and what we offer. And, you know, in the, in the new reality, for many reasons, I think that that doesn't necessarily look like doing as many tours as we were doing before COVID. Yeah, and, and I mean, experience Agave, it is a full-on experience. I mean, you guys are, are taking it to a level that it's not like you can just be like, hey, I'm just going to invite some friends down. I mean, you guys really have set this thing up to, to really give them, you know, a, a quite an amazing tour. Then you, you know, we've talked a little bit about it. Around 2016, you open up Lakata Tasting Room, uh, a brand independent tasting room in tequila. What, what, what does that mean? Brand independent? You have, you have no, you were no, no backers from any brands or anything, or what did that mean? No, no backers from any brands. I mean, and we were doing things that, that people, you know, considered quite insane. Like we won't take napkin dispensers yeah. with a brand on it. You know, we won't take lights with a brand on them. We won't take tables or chairs with a brand on them. You know, we, we came up with that phraseology, which is, which is pretty cumbersome. Um, because we, we didn't want to be disrespectful and we didn't want to be inaccurate. But, you know, a lot of the vernacular around this was, you know, it's the first real tequila bar in tequila, which, you know, is, is kind of the more back of the napkin thing. Because, you know, for years when, when folks like us would go to tequila, whether, you know, they were from the United States, whether they're from Mexico City, whether they were from some other part of Mexico, most of us would go with this idea that I'm going to tequila. I'm going to try all of the tequilas, right? This, this is the town of tequila. I'm going to be able to try all the tequilas. And you would get there and be quite surprised and, and basically underwhelmed to, to find that, you know, there might be four brands that, that you could try. And probably you had had at least three of them before. Yeah. And you were probably not a fan of all of them yeah. if you were a fan of any of them. And it was like that for years. You know, year after year, I would say to myself, man, somebody's going to figure this out. I mean, somebody is going to figure out. And, and, you know, most places, you know, most places would have all four or five brands, but some places would be very married with one, right? And the whole place would be branded with brand X or brand Y and you know, people will know who these brands are and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with them but it nothing was there for someone who really wanted to get a breadth of experience yeah. and an educational experience and you could get educational experiences in distilleries somewhat but obviously they're only going to have their products so years keep going by keep going by keep going by and i'm like well somebody's going to do this right somebody's going to do this nobody did it nobody did it nobody did it this is not a story that a lot of people know but the the origin story actually is evolves tomas estes okay uh, who may he rest yeah. in peace good good friend good friend everyone knows who tomas is so tomas and i were hanging out in tequila and uh, this this was in in 2016, late summer, early fall 2016. And he he gets a message or a call or something, and he says, "Hey, do you know Chelis?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I know Chelis." He's like, "He wants to he wants to talk to me about something. You want to go over to his place?" Yeah, sure. So we go over to to this guy Jose Luis's place, who um who's, who's also passed away unfortunately. He was a legendary guy. He had worked at La Capilla, which is how a lot of folks who listened to this would would have known him. But um his his father was known as El Carajo. His father had worked at Cuervo his whole life in production. And Chelis had opened a nightclub called Vaqueros. It's a it's a parking garage now. And he had opened another nightclub later called Carajos in honor of his father. And Carajos was was a legendary legendary place of just scandalous partying. Okay. Um, and and it, it had closed at some point. And so we go over to the Carajo space and we go in and Chelis was living there with his family at the time. And for some reason, he had decided he wanted to rent it out. And he was like, Tomas, and him and Tomas went way back. I think I think Tomas met him his first trip to tequila with Phil Bailey. Wow. They, they have a story about it in, in, in Phil's book. Um, so they went way, way back and they had brought Chelis over to Europe um, to, to work in to work in Cafe Pacifico. They, so they had a friendship going way, way back. And we go over and Chelis is like, hey, check this out. He's basically trying to pitch to Tomas that Tomas should rent this place and start a bar there. And Tomas was like, man, you're 15 years too late. I'm trying to retire. You know, he was still going strong with Ocho, but he was, you know, 
he was selling the bars. Jesse was taking yeah. over the bars. I, I don't really know the details, but he was definitely taking big step back from, yeah, he from wasn't running bars. New bars. He was like, he was like, no, absolutely not. So, you know, we have a drink, we take off and my gears are turning. And, and I asked him a couple hours later, I was like, Tomas, would you have any problem if I follow up with him about that? And he was like, oh my God, you should do it. You have to do it. No, you have to do it. And so anyway, one thing led to another. Tomas was like, I can't believe I didn't think about that right at the moment. You should totally do it. Um, somewhere I have a video of, of, of Tomas giving his stamp of approval to Lakata before we had a name, before we had partners or anything. But I, I in my head kind of knew the people who I wanted to be involved as my partners and, and approached it because I had, I had, I should also say I wanted someone to do this. I didn't particularly want to do it. I had zero experience in bars, but through the tour business, I had had people with the kind of money that it takes to invest, to open a bar, approach me and say, Hey, if you want to do a tequila bar, I'll back you or I'll you know, be your partner. I'll be an investor. And they were never, they were never the right people. You know, they were never the right people. That's, you know, obviously a very big decision yeah. and an important relationship. But in my mind, I knew who the people were both on the investor side and on the operations side who, if this happened, I would do it with. And so it was the space, which is funny because the space turned out to be our Achilles heel. <laughs> I thought it was a great space, but it was not a great space. But because the space popped up right at the time, I thought, okay, it's it's time to do this. And I, I put Voltron together, I put the team together. Um, and I think we signed a lease on that space like two months later, and we opened in March, March of 2017. There, Tequila, did you get any pushback? And this is a guy from Bakersfield, right. California, who's, who's like, <laughs> this is the most authentic tequila bar in tequila. Well, push back there. No, no. And, well, and we never said like that. You know, we were, like I said, we were very careful to say we are a tasting room. We're the first brand independent bar in tequila, meaning we have no financial ties to brands, meaning we won't accept any support from brands, even napkins. And every 100% agave tequila brand is going to be welcome here. Not not only as a presence on the back bar with a bottle. Now we're not guaranteeing we're going to buy everybody's tequila, but we had a commit we had a commitment to represent every gnome. Okay. And certainly and certainly there were some gnome and we never had every single every single one. But if someone came in and said I have a tequila from this gnome. You don't have it. We would buy it. Um, but, and, and we were, we were very, I'd have to look it up, but I think we had about 75 gnomes. Um, we had, we had something like 200, 230 marks, you know, 230 different bottles. That was just tequila. Then we had like a small selection of, of mezcal and other spirits, but we, we were trying to distinguish ourselves in a few ways. One, we are married to no brand, but friends to all. We we did draw a line at 100% agave, although we did have Tequileño Blanco 7030 under the bar for when Saez came in, and, and we would we would we would serve him his tequila, and we had Tequileño 100% on the back bar, and we wanted it to be the industry's living room. We wanted it to be a place where tequileros could come and break bread, where folks from the Highlands could come, where folks from Guanajuato could come. One of the things I had seen for years in tequila was for a long time you didn't see any Highlands tequila in the town of tequila, which which to a certain extent makes sense. But again, for people coming here, especially back when it was so hard to get to the Highlands, you would start to see Siete Leguas. Um, and I was always very happy about that. You would see Siete Leguas in the later years, but we were the first place where you could go in and you know, our, we set up our back bar. It was meant to be a schematic map of Mexico. Oh, wow. Okay. So and that was a te- that was a teaching tool. So, you know, there was a part of the back bar that was the Highlands of Jalisco. So, we wanted to be inclusive. We wanted to be not exhaustive, but a place where you would have to go many, many, many times before you had tried even close to everything that we had. Um and we wanted to have a serious cocktail program, which which was not a thing that was happening in tequila at the time and was was something that one of my partners brought in. It was not my my forte, but so, you know, we had Good cocktails made for adults with fresh local ingredients. And we had more 100% agave tequilas than probably even anywhere in Guadalajara, but certainly anywhere I think that wasn't in Guadalajara in the region, and more than anywhere in Mexico City. Yeah. And, you know, we prided ourselves on our service and our hospitality, but we wanted and, and serious experiences. We did tasting flights. We spent a lot of time and resources on staff training. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say the folks that work there, Many of them are doing great, great things now in the tequila space and, and, and you know, tastings and things like that in ways that I don't think they necessarily envisioned themselves doing at that time. So it was it was a real watershed. I'm very proud of it. And, you know, it's it's too bad it ended the way it did. But 
you know, yeah. we'll, we'll always, we'll always have those three years. Yeah, and I'm sure, you know, like you said, it probably set the foundation for a lot of things that came out of it as you look back and go, wow, that person's doing this and they learned so many things, which has got to be, you know, a pretty awesome feeling. Well, and I'll, and I'll say, you know, so I keep saying uh, when I was dropping off the book to so-and-so, cause I've been doing that running around, you know, trying to, to drop the book off, especially the people who I interviewed for it, Tequila letters who are featured in there. So I went by the Arete offices the other day. I think they're the last folks that I've seen uh, on this little round. And Lalo, Eduardo, and Jaime uh, were all, and Jaime Jr. were all in the, were all in the office. So I'm giving them the book. We're talking about it. And Eduardo Orendine, as as I'm leaving, you know, I didn't come to talk about Lacate. It was the furthest thing from my mind. And he was just like, I just want you to know how much we miss Lakata, and you guys raised the bar. He's like, there is a clear difference. There is a before and there's an after in town. The bar was raised. There'll never be anything else like that, but the bar was raised and we missed it. And that, you know, obviously that meant a lot to me, especially because, you know, Eduardo didn't come in there a lot, but it was the kind of place where people knew they could, they could go in there. They could bring associates in there. They could bring family in there. They could bring guests in there. It was going to be comfortable. They were going to be well served. And they knew that their tequila was going to be in there and that we knew about their tequila. Yeah. I mean, again, just, just a, a huge respect there. And then as if you are not doing enough to help celebrate and educate about this amazing thing that we call tequila, you spend a few years and you write this book, A Field Guide to Tequila. Uh, what was it that made you feel the, the need to write this? I mean, the short answer is COVID. <laughs> hey, hey, I started a podcast, so. Right, right. Yeah, you know, I mean, if I, I think, you know, timing-wise, just the way the publishing industry works, I would guess the vast majority of books coming out between like two months ago and two months from now are were, were COVID books, you know, were COVID projects in one way or another. The book, you know, similar to the bar, it was less of a reach. You know, I had never even worked in a bar. So for me to open a bar, I was wildly unqualified to do that. And it was a very steep learning curve. My employees taught me more than I taught them, I'm sure. And my partners had to virtually hold my hand from distance every single day and, and, and virtually dry my real tears. Um, so I opened, the, I opened a tequila bar like that in tequila because nobody else had done it. I also wrote this book because nobody else had done it. Although it was less of a reach. I'm, I'm certainly closer to being a writer than I am to being, you know, a, a bar entrepreneur. But it was something that had been kicking around in my head for a long time. And, you know, it, it's another anecdote, I think I say in the preface, but it's also very true. I had gotten into consulting over the course of, of these 15 years as well. And in doing staff trainings at bars and restaurants, and with tour clients, you know, people constantly ask me, what book should I get? What book should I get? What book yeah. should I get? And and there was never one book. Now, if you read Spanish, there was closer to one book, but there it was still like kind of two or three and sort of, you know, doing amalgamation of, of certain parts of these two or three books. In English, there were these great kind of timepiece books, um, like Bob Emmons' book, and I think Lance Cutler was, was the other one. There were these two books written by gringos in the 80s and early 90s that just as books and as kind of time capsules of what tequila looked like to someone from the U.S. at those times are fantastic. And I love them. But they're not valid references anymore. And they're and they're not particularly easy to find. And then there's academic books like Sarah Bowen's book and Sarita Gaitan's book, which are fantastic. And I've always recommended to people, but not everybody wants a work of sociology. Yeah. And, and those books are focused on very specific research questions that aren't really, how's tequila made? And like, who is, who is this Felipe Camarena guy and things like that? Gary Nobhan and Ana Valenzuela's book, I've also always recommended to people, you know. But again, it was kind of like, well, what is your interest? Oh, you want to learn about everything? Well, you kind of got to read all these and probably a lot of it's going to fall outside of what your interest actually is. So essentially, I knew that there was this gap and it was interesting to me because there's there's a lot of mezcal books and and there's several of them that are that are quite good. Um, I think Emma Jansen's is is really good. I yeah. think Jay Schroeder's book is 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 particularly good. But it's interesting because it was almost like the literary or publishing attention almost leapfrogged over tequila and went to mezcal because it was easier to point to mezcal books and say, oh, you'll you'll learn something here. And so I knew there was this gap. And then COVID comes. We knew within a month that the bar was dead. 
So the bar is dead. I don't know when tourism is coming back. I don't know what it's going to look like when it does. I've just spent a lot of money on a rebrand that is going to turn out to be probably somewhat irrelevant. So, you know, like a lot of people, I spent about a month, you know, drinking in my underwear. And it was like, well, okay, I, I can't really keep doing this for, for too much. You know, you have the Zoom when Zoom is new and you have the Zoom, the Zoom happy hours and parties. And- we would hang out on my driveway with friends sitting six to eight feet apart, I would have a table with different yeah. tequilas and, and hand sanitizer, you know, cause we, we bought into everything. And, That's and it was great. Just like, this is the new normal. Well, and my friends in Sacramento were able to do that too. I, you know, I was still living in downtown Mexico city with a lot of density, you know, in a very big apartment building. And, you know, in the early, you know, this is March, April, that first summer, we didn't know anything. I mean, this is, you're still spraying your groceries with alcohol and you know and in mexico city it's a big city it's dense the healthcare is not super great if you don't have a lot of money so people are just dying you know people are dying there's ambulances all the time the morgues are full you know it was it's kind of easy to forget sometimes like like how how grim that time really was but you know there was the fun part of it right which is like well school's out it's a snow day forever maybe but you know after about a month i was like okay i need i need to focus i need a project you know like i can't i can't just just keep hanging out and doing this for longer than a month and and so i so i did two things i decided i was going to start looking into graduate programs and i was going to write this book and it took a long time to it took a long time to sell the book because um publishing also shut down people the publishing industry also didn't know what the future was going to look like so it took us about a year to sell the book um and then about two years to finish it, I guess, total. But yeah, it, it, you know, once, once there was a, once a publisher was interested, it wasn't, well, I don't want to say it wasn't hard because it was very hard, but I was able to do most of this during quarantine in my apartment because I had boxes of notebooks because I had 15 years of notebooks and field recordings and video recordings and things like this. So I was able to write for a year before I needed to say, okay, it's time to get people on the phone. It's time to do some interviews. It's time to do some fact checking. So it, you know, it was kind of a two, two and a half year project, or it was a 15 year project, depending on the way you look at it. But, but it was kind of locked and loaded. You know, most, most of, I, I knew what the structure was going to be. I planned for it to be even longer and nerdier than it is. But, but luckily, I had a good editor who who made it uh readable instead <laughs> yeah th- this book is it uh, like honestly n- no smoke it it is amazing it it's the type of book that you know Thank no you. matter your education in tequila you're gonna learn something and and honestly i when i as i read it i don't want to i don't want to put it down i i have a highlighter I go through it. I highlight things because, you know, I, I've learned a lot and I know so much more now than I did years ago, but there's still so much to learn. You you hit through the historical, I mean, just how special blue the agave plant is. And, and as you just go through it and, and it's broken down into these sections that it's real easy to get into and, and read it. I'm sure all the prepping, all the research as, as you're going through all of that, but you're also doing these interviews. There had to be, and I know you, you have a wealth of knowledge, but what was there anything that you learned through this process? I mean, as you were going through it all, to that, oh, that for surprised sure. you. They went, oh wow, I didn't even think of it in this way. A lot of the technical details of production were, you know, little things that you think you know, but you might not have the right terminology, or a couple little things that you know you, you've actually learned wrong. Um, so going back and and reading reading primary sources, reading technical books on fermentation, on distillation, textbooks. And then being like, wait, do I have this wrong? And then, you know, calling people up and being like, hey, does the dead yeast float or does it sink? Oh, it sinks. Oh, whoa. For some reason, I've been thinking it floated for yeah. years. That's that's one little thing, you know, which I'll just go on the record and admit. And and I think that was one Cami caught where she was like, I'm pretty sure it sinks. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think I think I called up I think I called up Chavo Rosales and I was like, sink or float? He's like, it sinks. <laughs> um, so you know, they they helped with that. Little things about history, you know, that you end up checking because you're, it's one, th- I mean, I, I try to be pretty accurate, but it's one thing when you're telling people something on a tour and you're like, well, people say this. And you can say, you know, well, rumor has it or people say things in a book, but I didn't really want it to be that kind of book. So, so doing some fact checking on historical stuff, you know, taught me some things. Just sort of putting it all together in the same place at once was like, Wow. In a sense, we used to give people, because now we give them this book, but for years we made these little notebooks, um, these little like booklets that were kind of the cliff notes 
to what became this book. And we started every tour with an agave orientation where we walked people through the what, the where, and the how of tequila. And it was all contained in this book. And then it had little bios of the distilleries that we were going to visit. And so that was the basic structure I brought into the, the writing process was that. And people were always, you know, this is like an 18-page little booklet. And people were always like, wow, there's a lot in this little booklet. Um, but then to turn that into, you know, whatever it is, when you're going back through it, you're like, wow, there's there's a lot in here. And a lot there's a lot that didn't make it, right? And so I can hold a lot in my brain at once, but I can't hold everything that's in that book in my brain all at the same time. So really to go through and like have to remember and be like, okay, I got to fix this. Oh, wait, I got to recheck yeah. that. It's it's something that it makes you realize how far you've come. And it's also a little bit of a relief to get it down. And there's, I've, I've already caught a couple a couple of minor little things that that I'm going to fix for the second printing, very minor, but you know, it, it, would, it would shock me if, if everything in it was, was perfect. It, it's a bit of a relief because you're kind of like, I don't have to remember it all anymore because I wrote it down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as I read it, I, I mean, I, I'm trying to just hold on to as, as much to be a sponge and just to, to hold on to as much. And that's why, you know, I, uh, I have a highlighter and there's things that I go, Oh man, I'm going to come back to this. And, and it really is. I mean, you cover, I mean, when you say a field guide, I mean, the ultimate, I mean, most comprehensive, you cover everything. And like I said, in a way that, that Thank is you. so easy to read and to understand you, you even have, a, I mean, you, you said earlier, you, you have a section where, you know, you're getting to deep dive with these producers, these brands, and you're really paying on, you know, respect and honor to them getting to look a little closer to some of these amazing people in the industry. What was that like? And I'm sure you picked up some things of just going, wow, I get to kind of look behind the curtain, which is pretty special. Oh yeah. Very cool. You know, and to and to check back up on things because those were the things I didn't spend a lot of time writing down over the course of these years because when you're getting family stories and stuff it's usually you know the the education is over you've probably moved into drinking just right you're sitting out. around a table maybe maybe you're at the canteen that you're hanging out it doesn't necessarily occur to you to be writing down and you don't want to be that weird you know someone's like well what really happened with my grandfather was this and you're like oh let me, yeah get on the record here you, you know and there's things that you want to be sensitive to right things that people don't necessarily want to talk about that that you can allude to but you're not trying to, to write a tell-all there's you know you want to respect people's privacy but yeah, getting into those family histories was where I definitely did go back and say, okay, tell me more about this. Am I right in thinking this and, and things like that? And, you know, getting to talk to Herman Gonzalez, his, he doesn't have a brand that's profiled in the book, but I do have an essay on Tamaulipas. And, and what I think is, what I hope is a good and coherent summary of why the hell is Tamaulipas in the deal? Yeah. Um, you know, in the book, I call it the mystery of Tamaulipas. And it's something that, I think it's talked about as innuendo or historical rumor in a way that most people who talk about it have between a third and two thirds of it, right? Which is not a lot, especially the low end of that. So it's something I wanted to tell the story and get and kind of get, you know, both sides of, you know, what really happened here. And so to dig both into archives and talk to someone whose, whose family was part of it, talk to two different sides of people whose family was part of this was, was pretty remarkable. And then, yeah, just to, to dig into family histories and I, the, we, the way we set that up, I'm not going to remember the, all the, the, the categories, but I think we have four categories. We have the giants of tequila, the guardians of tradition, everything old is new again, which are like, you know, legacy brands an ascendant generation and agaveros turn tequileros. And that last one was one that from the very beginning, I knew I really wanted to talk about and I wanted to find the right way to tell this story and tell it in a way where the three families we profile in there really are differentiated because the Agave Wars, that's its, that's its own book um, and I'm not the one to write it, but you know, there there's this long and really, really rough history between Agave farmers and tequila producers who at one point were completely mutually exclusive categories and still are, are, you know, mostly two different groups of people. And there was this moment, it's not the only time it's happened, but there was this moment in the early 90s where a number of them, a number of these agave farming families said, hey, this is the moment for us to make the leap and capture more of this value down you know, down the commodity chain and make our own tequila. And it was costly and it was risky. And I think every single one of them told me, the first tequilas we made were not very good. Uh, we didn't know what we were doing. We, we lost a lot of agave. But, you know, one of these is the Vivanco family at 1414, which, you know, people who listen to this are, are going to know who that is. And, and so that was 
that's not like tr- personal trivia, which we all love personal trivia. You know, ah, what, what kind of truck is Felipe driving? But this was more kind of a broader theme that I really wanted to get in there because I, it, for me in the aficionado community, sometimes the broader themes are not as present as I would like them to be. So, so when it came to the histories and the biographies, this was a piece where I was like, I can contribute something that I feel like I don't hear people talking about, which is there is a kind of distillery and some of them the aficionados love and some of them they don't. But there's a kind of distillery that grew out of people who were agave farmers and were salt of the earth and were on a real boom and bust that made a leap that changed their lives and that changed the industry. And all of them are a really, really important part of the story. And I wanted to make sure that that was in there. And, you know, it's kind of the grand themes thing. Even in production, you know, I went through years and I think it's natural. A lot of people do this for a long time of, well, what's the size of that tank? And, you know, what's the temperature when this happens? And like, that's important, right? That stuff is important. But I think it's important also to when you get kind of a broad sense of what that data looks like to be able to make a leap to a more abstract level and start to talk in generalities of, well, at cooler temperatures, this tends to happen or with stainless steel why tends to happen. And because I want the book to be accurate for a long time, and because people change their production process all the time, and I don't want someone chasing me around and being like, you said it was 38 degrees Fahrenheit, it's actually 39. In the production, there's some very specific stuff in there. But I'm more interested in talking about concepts and broad contours of how does this stuff work and why so that people can make the leap themselves of like, oh, and so if I lower this temperature, this might happen. Or if I did this faster, that might happen. So kind of trying trying to sneak some some more abstract academic thinking into something that I hope is is a fun and enjoyable read too. Yeah, in addition to, you know, all this information, so so much incredible information. This book is filled with so many beautiful images that they were taken by the man himself, Grover Sandstrom. That's right. From Tequila Matchmaker. He like within those pictures, he's telling his own story through those pictures. Yeah. Uh, how how did that come about? I know he had a lot of time to to work through it as you were, you know, giving him, you know, hey, these are kind of what I'm what I'm thinking of what I want to hit, but how did that come about to get him involved? Well, we're good friends. You know, uh, I go back a long way with Grover and Scarlett. We met, I'd have to, this was pretty early, but I mean, it's, I think I had been doing tours. It was probably around 2010. We met with a guy named Ryan Kelly. Ryan, if, if you're out there, miss you guy. He was um, the national tequila examiner at the time. I don't know if you remember, there used to be this kind of like network of websites. Um, you could be like the bourbon examiner or, you know, the the sushi examiner. And it was basically a way of, of these advertisers to get people to write content for free, I think. But if, if you could get in there and be the first, especially at the national level yeah. of something, you could really build your own brand. And so, and so Ryan was a great writer and he was in there as a national tequila examiner. So he and I, I think he was going to do a tour. He was, he was on like my fourth or fifth tour. And so he and I were hanging out and he was like, oh, do you know Grover and Scarlett? And I was like, no. And he's like, oh, well, come meet them. And so we all went to, I'm, I'm going to blank on the name of the distillery and the gnome, but it's where Corrido was originally made, okay. the, the place where they were making Corrido. And I think they were making another tequila called Sol Azteca. Anyway, we went and I was a massive Corrido fan. I was, you know, I featuring in tastings all the time um, at that, in that era. And so anyway, so we went, we, we hit it off. I mean, I've been friends with them, I guess, since about 2010. And I know he's a great photographer and, you know, he lives here. He knows everybody. It's none of us can say that everybody likes us, but certainly everybody I wanted to be in the book likes them. So, um, you know, it, it was, it was kind of a no brainer. We're friends enough and he's generous enough that I had to really kind of like be like, no, no, no this is this is a real job i'm hiring you like we're not gonna this is not a bros this is not a bros thing you know like you're you're part of this this is a business you're gonna be you're gonna have part of these you know copyrights or whatever it was a no-brainer i mean to me there was there was not really i mean who else is gonna do this i i didn't because i don't have to micromanage it i don't have to tell him how to do it i don't have to tell him who these people are or where they are he he knew all those people yeah I mean, and it and you know, so we just came up with a massive shot list. I also didn't have to tell him what a quiote is, or you know, what I mean when I'm like, I want I want hijuelos and and I want them from you know limon size to to pina size. You know, like you don't have to. He knows, you know, he knows what the book what's going to be in the book. So it was just the the easiest thing it could have possibly been. Um, we worked really well together. 
you know, he took so many great photos. Um, and I think, you know, he has a lot of stuff he can use for a long time, hopefully as well. So I, I was really, really happy with the photos. He is, you know, I'm very critical of my own work. He's very critical of his work. And as he was turning in the photos, he was like, they don't like them, do they? They don't like, you hate these, right? <laughs> and I was like, dude, these are great. Like, what are you talking about? That's what it looks yeah. like. It looks awesome. Like, I don't even know how to take a picture. And then, but then when the book came out, you know, Artisan is known for, the artist and the publisher is known for doing really physically beautiful books. And the design is great. The cover's great. The illustrations are awesome. And and Grover got one of the first copies and he was like, this looks really great. And the photos also look good. And I was like, thank God, you know, because I thought it looked great, but I was like, oh, he's going to be like, these photos are something about cyan or something that I don't understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, a lot of people don't know that. I mean, he's a journalist. He's a photographer. I mean, in, in yeah. addition to everything he's done, he and Scarlett. But he had a whole career. Yeah, I mean, you he know? is yeah, very they, talented. Yeah. Both of them. Yeah. I mean, the image, yeah. every, everything there is, is incredible. Uh, this book, I know a long time in the making and, and this it's finally out, you know, as you, you know, you've been dropping it off to so many people. This is finally out the reviews. They are so positive as you look back on, I mean, this is a journey and, and this is not a two, three year journey. This is you so many years in the making writing journals, all, all of that stuff. How has it changed you now that, I mean, it's out, people are getting to look into it and go, wow, this is, uh, you know, I didn't know this, but, but what is it, what does that mean to you? And how's it changed you? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. You know, the, this part of my life in general, you know, I'm about to have been doing this, I guess, professionally for 15 years. And I was dabbling for a couple before that. So um, at this point, this is a third of, of my life, not, you know, not even my adult life. It's, it's a third of my entire life. So, you know, it's, it's the end of a chapter, I think. I mean, I'm not going anywhere, but you know, I am, I am now focusing, uh, you know, on Ricea research, um, and want to do some other writing. So in a way for me, it's, it's kind of a, a summary, you know, of, of the last third of my life of, of what I, what I have to show for myself for the last 15 years, you know, at least my mom maybe understands what I do now. Uh, <laughs> I'm just, just down here drinking, yeah. you know, how it's changed. It's, it's a little scary, you know, it's, it's risky. It's, you know, it's not like you're writing a memoir. It's not like you're writing something, you know, super creative. It's not like you're, you know, posing naked, you know, in a picture or anything, but, but it's risky, you know, and as you well know, the, I think the tequila community can, can be a bit petty sometimes. I mean, people are fantastic and, and I've met lifelong friends in this and some of the best people I know are, are in this world. But, you know, it, it takes all kinds. Right. And and I think there's a certain kind of person in any scene um, that likes to backbite and and likes to tear people down. Yeah, I'm on social media. I, I get that a lot. I'm yeah, <laughs> I try. I try not to be, man. I, I try not to be. But, you know, so I think I really have girded myself for people to find something to attack about it. And I'm sure they will. But but I'm, I'm still kind of in a, in a honeymoon. People have the reception. I mean, I know the book is good and I knew that people who I take seriously would appreciate it, but the reception has been more, has been even more positive than I anticipated. And so it's particularly, you know, I didn't write it to flatter anybody and I didn't, you know, let anybody I wrote about, you know, editorialize or even see anything that, that I, that I wrote, but I certainly want folks to feel that it's that it's accurate and that it's respectful and the response from the producers in particular has been really really gratifying and then to you know to hear people you know like you and, and other people who you know been doing this and know what they're doing to get this effusive feedback it, it means a lot you know it, it makes you feel like you know it wasn't for it wasn't for nothing i mean how it's changed me i think it it does it does make me feel like like it is kind of the end of a chapter of my life, which which I didn't necessarily expect. But, you know, there's a lot of changes in tourism. There's a lot of changes in this region. There's a lot of changes in the tequila industry. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, it makes me feel like, you know, as I turn my attention to other things, you know, I, I left my scrawl on the wall. Uh, you know, I've, I've contributed my, my drop of sand, as, yeah. as we say in Mexico. So, you know, I hope it'll be, you know, built on and improved upon at some point. But I, I think with, you know, the help of other people, Grover, my editor, you know, the designers, people who read the book, I think we've contributed to something that that will have some some staying power and 
and hopefully encourage people to take uh, a positive and, and respectful and when when appropriate critical you know stance towards the cure. Yeah. No, it, like I said, it, it it really is an incredible book, Clayton. Thank you for for one taking the time to come on the show, but but for putting all of this down and and for you know allowing us to to gain access to you know the past however many years of your life as you've been diving deep into this. Uh, I want to make sure you know Christmas is almost here. Everybody that's listening, uh, go on Amazon right now. We'll wait, go right now and, and purchase a copy of a field guide to tequila, buy it for yourself, buy it for your friends, anybody that likes tequila, anybody that likes history, anybody that just wants to educate themselves on something that's incredibly fascinating uh, to go out and to buy this book. What's the best way of people that want to experience the tours with experience agave? What's the best way for people to go and to sign up? You've got mezcal. You you are, you're learning a lot about Rysia, studying that, but you also have a guy there that can do some incredible tours. What's the best way for people to do one of these tours? Experienceagave.com. Um, we, we are on social media. Cami handles that. I'm, I'm rather allergic to it, but you know, it's, I, I'm like old school and like websites and email, but um, you can find us on Instagram at Experience Agave, Facebook Experience Agave, experienceagave.com has a lot of information about the tour. So you can kind of kick the tires a little bit before you, you get in touch with us. Clayton, I appreciate all that you're doing. Thank you for all that you're doing in this space. Thank you, Doug. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for, for being on the show. Cheers to the book. Uh, like I said, everybody needs to have a copy of this because it, it really is fascinating. So Clayton, thank you so much for being on the show and a cheers and salute, my friend. Salute. It was fun. See ya. That was Clayton Check with Experience Agave and his new book, A Field Guide to Tequila, which you can purchase on Amazon. Well, that does it for another season of the Agave Social Club podcast. Thank you to everybody that listens to the show. So much appreciation to all my guests that have been on the show over the past year, as well as to SipTequila.com for being a great partner of the show. I'm going to take a little break, spend some time with my family, focus on daily content on my social media channels. So make sure you're following me on Instagram and TikTok at Agave Social Club. And we'll be back with all new episodes in January. And I also have a couple other exciting things that I'm working on for next year, which I can't wait to share. Wishing everyone a great holiday season. I'm Doug Price, and thanks for listening.